<coughs> attention, Achtung. Um, I'm, I'm only going to speak a few minutes, but if I speak at about this volume, can everyone hear in back? Okay, um, I want to thank everyone for coming to this uh, event, and um, uh, especially the um, David and the uh, Mockingbird staff who worked tirelessly for these events. I was reflecting that the numbers this year, and I think I've been to all 11, uh, have never been better. Um, the vitality is extraordinary. And the quality of the substance has been mind-boggling. Would you not agree? I mean, there's, there's, I, I don't think there's been a single sort of uh, egg laid, as we sometimes would say. And uh, um, every aspect, and you know, I, I went into um, to Nick's. I tried to go to all the breakouts for a few minutes, and they were unbelievably affecting today. But between Carrie Willard about her relationships with her sister, and then Nick Lannon preaching the gospel in such a way that I, I found myself crying within 10 minutes. When the gospel is really preached, which is extremely rare, it's extremely rare that the gospel is preached in its complete non-conditional character. Um, it dissolves most human individuals, and um, as opposed to cats. Uh, and um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I found, as Nick was speaking, I just found myself with a lump in my throat, not because of any particular illustration or subjective um, element, but what he was saying was so summoning and so... Um, um, uh, giving so much room to human insufficiency. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't a single if in the entire thing. So I just want to uh, salute this remarkable thing. A number of people have come who I've known for many years uh, from other walks of life, and I'm not going to welcome them, but they know who they are, and I'm deeply grateful that a few individuals have come from different corners of our lives. Mary... Zal is not here because she, every year this time, she goes on a seven-night, eight-day silent retreat in Massachusetts, and um, it, 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 it was, it's very important to her. So she was conflicted about it. I wish she were here, but um, she is, uh, I can't get in touch with her. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, um, what I wanted to do... Um, briefly is to talk about um, two um, core anchoring um, uh, convictions that I think um, underlie the um, depth and the power of Mockingbird. And then one other, uh, uh, for me, unusual development. And that's what I'm going to talk about briefly. Um, the first thing that um, the, the, the Christian um, gospel um, underlines, and all of you have received stickers that say it, is that the uh, Christian conviction rooted in the Old Testament but fully explored in the New Testament is the um, profound fallenness of everyday human nature. And that is a 
a, a devastating, important uh, sort of William Faulkner kind of truth that um, is in radical um, course confrontation with the human spirit in any time and epoch of human civilization. And um, the problem with an overly optimistic view of human nature, in addition to its vexing and uh, paralyzing and disappointing and ultimately hostility-provoking consequences, is that not that it's evil or bad so much as it's shallow. The problem with the world's view of the human predicament, or what Fitz Allison calls the problem of being human, is not that it's not well-intended or doesn't have a lot of good desires. I live in a state uh, where the Governor Scott is always saying what you've heard before, some terrible thing happens in the state, and he says, we must make sure that this kind of thing never happens again. And I hear that from presidents, from governors, from senators, from mayors, and it's based on a totally wrong, inaccurate, not evil or malicious, but inaccurate understanding of the depth of human pain and the various um, displacements of human pain that produce subterranean anger, resentment, and volcanic rage. And um, that means that we're living in a world where the diagnosis is not so much a kind of bad as you might say it's superficial and shallow. I've been thinking a lot about the um, music of Elton John recently. Um, you know, like you, I've been going back to the mid-period of Elton John. Uh, songs like um, Island Girl and Someone Saved My Life Tonight, you know, that period. And um, there's no getting around it, if you're into music of the 70s, that his music is fatally shallow. I mean, I, I, keep, I keep trying to force it. Now, I mean, take, for example, the song, Grow Some Funk of Your Own, which, you know, I, I go to that song with high hopes. It's got a tremendous beat. It's got Bernie Taupin or whatever his name was. It's got a great beat. It's got a great riff. It's got a great vocal. It has some humor in it, but it ultimately comes across as being uh, shallow and, and nowhere near in the same category as um, the stylistics. You know, who are really talking about love's loss. You know, um, I'm stone in love with you, puts grow some funk of your own. Just <laughs> So I use that example just to say, it's not that Elton John is bad or didn't mean well with Island Girl and grow some funk of your own, but when you listen to it now, it feels superficial, right? Yeah. So the power of Mockingbird numero uno is that it deals with human nature in diagnostic reality. And some people think it's bad news, but inevitably it feels good. Whenever you see things as they are, you inevitably feel better. Nancy and I talk about this all the time. Why is it that sometimes the bad news makes you feel relieved? Well, this is just, uh, you have to be dealing with the way things are, not the way that things ought to be. And then you can begin to actually um, develop compassion and empathy. That's point one. Point two, if you have a low enough anthropology, 
you'll have a high enough soteriology. Now, you've heard me say this before, and it's a cliche, but it's, it's just true in theology. If your anthropology is high and you think superficially or overly highly of the human ability to change the world and yourself, then your need for a savior will correspondingly go down. It won't be as important to you. If, on the other hand, you are aware that life is extraordinarily difficult for almost everybody at some point, um, and sometimes in an internally lasting way for a whole life that's scarred by unseen archaeological chasms of loss and pain, then the power of Christ's compassion exponentially increases. And that's why we say that this is a deeply Christian movement. It's a, it's a movement in which soteriology is everything. Um, many of you are doing this in your ministry. Many, many people here are, are living with a realistic version of life as it is and a therefore powerly magnified view of, of the grace of God in Christ. Um, there's a statue um, that uh, uh, Thorvaldsen, the Danish sculptor, of great authority in the mid-19th century, built called the Compassionate Christ. You've seen it. It was built for the Kaiser's Church in Germany, Potsdam, although he made it in Copenhagen. And um, when um, the then rector of the Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, in the 50s, had a critically ill child at Johns Hopkins, a critically ill child at Johns Hopkins. And he and his wife left Birmingham to Johns Hopkins to try to be with their deathly sick child. They noted that the chapel at Johns Hopkins had a copy of Torvaldson's statue, The Compassionate Christ. And it meant more to them than anything. The presence of empathetic Christian out stretched arms in this world-class piece of art, it got them through the greatest crisis of their family's life. So he comes back to Birmingham, and what does he want to do? He personally made it possible for the Church of the Advent to get a rip-roaring, large copy of The Compassionate Christ, and they put it right in the church wall at 20th Street and whatever it is. And... Um, when you pass by, that wasn't put up there to be some kind of monument to an um, uh, uh, Athanasian Christology. It was put up there as a statement that the rector and his wife could not have made it through the disease of their child. So there are two things. One is, um, is the uh, low anthropology which increases empathy. If it doesn't increase empathy, it's just a thought. But if it increases understanding for your impossible husband, or your very lost adult child, or your very, very um, conflicted father, um, it, 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 it won't help you. But um, the other thing is the power of the compassionate Christ, which um, I like to compare it with the song by Paul McCartney called Hope of Deliverance. Remember that song, Hope 
of deliverance. Remember that song? It's a great video. It's a completely lame song. <laughs> okay, remember it has all these guys juggling uh, things with burning, you know, and it's totally, and it has Buddhist monks having a moment of incredible coming together with Roman Catholic nuns. But all it is, all it is, you, you've, you grew up with this video. All, all it is, is lame because it's very locale and it's just a hope of deliverance. <laughs> you, know, you know, I have a hope of deliverance, but it's lacking in any conviction. Um, compare it to Eddie James. Eddie James is a gospel African-American singer who specializes in redeeming teenage drug addicts who live in Ocoee, Tennessee, where he has a school for teenage drug addicts. And I met them recently. I met 40 of them. And Eddie sings a song that lasts nine minutes, and I put it on a podcast last week, called Breakthrough. Does anybody here want a breakthrough? Breakthrough in my heart, breakthrough in my head, breakthrough in my toenails, break. I mean, it's unbelievable. But when you, <laughs> the funny thing about the song Breakthrough is that this man actually believes that such a thing could happen as opposed to a hope of deliverance. Now, um, the third thing I want to say is just, I want to just broach an odd subject, and then I'm done. Um, I'm, I'm receiving quite a bit of feedback on my um, remarks that, that I, I really have wanted to make from my heart, and I've only, I've held my fire because of the fear of getting attacked concerning Paula White. Now, Paula White, uh, whom I have become deeply thankful for, and for whose um, initial acquaintance I owe Tullian Tavigian, who allowed her to feel that she could even talk to me, because she has 800 texts per day. I'm not exaggerating. Um, People, how can, you, how can you speak positively about this person who we read about, da-da-da-da-da-da, or you hear words like the prosperity gospel, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, or you um, uh, hear all sorts of things about this woman, and um, they're almost all false. Um, I, I can say that. Why I bring her up is not to talk about her in her personal qualities, which are, you know, not for everybody. But um, when I heard her in January 2017, I realized that I had lost hope of deliverance in relationship to a couple of things I'd been wrestling with. Let's imagine you're wrestling with something that you've been dealing with for 50 years. Let's just imagine. <laughs> um, you, you know, it might be a memory. Uh, I mean, Carrie Willard talked about this a little bit. Um, uh, it might be an unfortunate experience that happened in your adolescence. Could have been related to your dad or, or a romantic misfire. Who hasn't had one of them? Or no misfire, because there was no fire. Um, and, um, but the, um, I, I realized when I went to see her purely out of curiosity, and I'm making a general point here, um, as I listened to her speak, because she always speaks an hour and five minutes, and when you're listening to her in person, you immediately say, Go, keep going. <laughs> Why are you stopping? 
There was a minister at St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Brooklyn who was one of the great spiritual leaders of the 19th century in the Episcopal Church. And he preached the gospel. And he would preach at the 8 o'clock service and at the 9 o'clock service and at the 11 o'clock service. His name was Richard Channing Moore. He later became the second bishop of Virginia. He was possessed by the Spirit of Christ. And at the end of the 11 o'clock service, he was always forced to say, my dear friends and hearers, I have been speaking to you now for three hours. This is in an Episcopal church, about 1820. And much as I delight in sharing with you the good news of God's salvation to us poor broken sinners, I find that if I do not return to my bed in the next half an hour, I will probably not be here next Sunday to continue. And he was famous for the vestry would interrupt his last sermon and guide him home to his home in Brooklyn Heights. Now, um, because he preached something that people could, they had to listen. And I'm gonna tell you just two stories and then I'm done. When I first heard Paula um, and take away prejudice, I, I had plenty of it. As I was sitting in the back row, and it's a predominantly African-American congregation, there are about eight white people, quote, end of quote, and hundreds and hundreds of people of color. And I was sitting in the back row, and as she spoke, I found that my pain in my heart, my pain, came out of my physical body and started traveling like a dolly shot or a pan shot towards the dais. So I was in the back row, and my pain was moving about pretty rapidly, about 10 miles an hour, towards, towards underneath where she was speaking. And it stopped there, and I was, my pain was there. And immediately I realized that my pain was a thing. It wasn't me. I wasn't the pain, but the pain existed. And extraordinary thing. Now, I had a friend who was the rector of St. Michael's on the west side here who used to say when he went to Episcopal churches on his vacations, he had the opposite experience. He, would, he, would, he, he was a very godly, Anglo-Catholic, liberal, but deeply, uh, uh, sort of like the people at Church of the Incarnation in uh, uh, Long Island, Garden City. Um, wonderful, wonderful place. And, and he, he found that he would go to Pascagoula, Mississippi on vacation, and he'd go to a very, very cold and chilly Episcopal parish, and he found that his pain would start from the middle of the church going backwards. <laughs> He said, Paul, it's like I, I literally felt so alienated that by the time the service was over, I was literally in the narthex. Now, that's powerful because chances are that you have some pain that needs to get out that hasn't if you're normal, if you're human. And if you could imagine and be, not imagine, if you could actually find somebody for whom uh, the, the, something about this woman I don't understand it. I, I can't, I see her every Sunday and I, I've never been disappointed. Um, but th th there was a movie in the 50s called The Next Voice You Hear. Has anybody ever heard of it? Well, it's a notorious movie because Ronald Reagan's wife, long before she was Reagan, Ronald Reagan's wife, stars in it. And it's about a young American family in California who, who at 7.30 on a Thursday night on the radio hear the voice of God. And the voice of God speaks to the entire world in its own language and shapes up the entire world. And finally, the Episcopal minister in the town, they all gather, and he puts the radio on the pulpit. And they're all going to listen to the voice of God. Well, that's what a preacher is. 
A preacher is a person who should be standing here, as it were, with a radio to the best of your ability and in faith connected to the Word of God. Well, for whatever reason, um, when I hear Paula White, I don't understand it. I, I, I see a radio. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is, you'll laugh about this, but it's important to me. One of the things, whenever people say the idea that God became a man, the uh, person, you know, the idea that I could take my pain and abreact it in such a way that I could become an integrated person, always turn off when they say the idea that. It's, it's, if it's an idea, it's, not, it's nothing. When I heard Paula, I realized with so much of my very sincere and I think correct faith, which had worked in many situations, I had lowered my expectations. I didn't really believe that God could actually take the worst impasses and concretely shift. She's always saying, I see a shift, I see a shift. And I say, I see the tea leaves, I see the tea leaves. I mean, I see a shift. And um, on the 18th of February, during a service at night, um, while she was speaking, I don't know why it happened, but I had a vision, an extraordinary vision. Um, uh, and the vision was um, truly like Joan of Arc describes her visions. I was, uh, I've had them before, but this was devastating. And I knew something had shifted. Something had shifted. I, I, and within five minutes of the vision, the following songs came into my mind while sitting in the church. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. <laughs> the OJ's Love Train. The Spinners, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love? The Hughes Corporation, I'd Like to You Know Where You Got the Motion. Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly with His Song. Maria Muldaur, Midnight at the Oasis, Are You Out of Your Mind? This happened within literally five minutes. The Pure Prairie League, Amy, I haven't finished. Jim Croce, You Don't Mess Around with Bill. The Ozark Mountain Daredevils, uh, uh, you know, Anyway, I, I don't, the Starland Vocal Band, Afternoon Delight, which is sort of sordid, and Gordon Lightfoot's Carefree Highway. Now, what in the world? I'm sitting in church, and it's like a, 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 in a, on the car radio, the, a, a station shifted from a very, very painful series of songs that had, I've been sparked, I've been parked at about 65 songs that have evoked a painful, painful memory. <laughs> Pure Prairie League, Amy. <laughs> Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a great wife you would make. I mean, now, something major had happened. Nothing like that has ever happened to me in my entire life. I didn't construct it. I didn't want it. This rush of songs from the year 1975 to 1971 came, and I knew instantly that God had completely and totally um, become, uh, ch change, changed me. And uh, so I guess all I'm trying to say is, in addition to a non-shallow uh, or overly optimistic but inaccurate view of human sin and catastrophe, coupled with a properly high view of this unbelievably unique event that Jim Monroe wants to take us all to see in Israel, though he tells us we don't sign up for it. Um, <laughs> the, the, the power of the Christ soteriology, which saved the rector, John Turner, of Church of the Advent, Birmingham. It saved him. 
Thirdly, to a lowering of expectations in my own inner life by which I believed that God could handle every problem except the one problem that he obviously couldn't handle. Um, I just speak to you as one whose faith, sort of, as it were, seems to have been stretched by, by uh, a looking glass. And um, I wanted to tell you that just in case anyone here is feeling like, gosh, I love this so much, but, but I, I want it to actually work. I mean, really work. A guy that Bill Bradford, who's here, and uh, Samuel Freeman, who's here, and from my class at Chapel Hill, remembers, another Moorhead, a scholar down there. Uh, I asked him recently, uh, as a marriage counselor of 35 years in Raleigh, what's the biggest thing that you've learned? And I'm going to finish now. He said, well, wives and husbands almost never tell their wives or husbands what's really on their minds. He said, there's a level underneath what they say. There's a level under that. There's a level under that. And there's a level under that. And there is usually one to two utterly verboten, unconsciously verboten areas that are simply absolute no-go. And he said, my job is to make it possible with compassion and empathy for the woman and the man to speak about the things that they have never felt able to speak about. RJ touched on this, remember? And it's so vital and I'm here just as one other page in that book. I thank you so much for coming and uh, really appreciate everyone's being here, but most of all, Mockingbird. Thank you.